Hello, my name is Cezary Mik. I am professor at the Faculty of Law and Administration at the Cardinal Stefan Wyszyński University in Warsaw in Poland, where I had the Chair of International and European Law. I would like to offer you a reflection on the Pacta Sunt Servanda principle in, in, in international law. I will try to make clear the complexity of the principle and its relations with other rules and institutions of international law. I would like to discuss the historical context of the principle, its current legal status, constituent elements as regulated by Article 26 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, and positive um, as well negative consequences of the principle. For the purposes of my lecture, in addition to the expression Pacta sunt Servanda, I will also use the shorter term PSS principle or Pacta. So, let's start with a brief uh, historical re reflection. The formula expressing the legal duty to perform binding agreements has been known since ancient times. However, for a long period of time, it was not referred to, to as Pacta sunt Servanda, but rather to the sanctity of treaties. It was one of the manifestations of the close ties between law and religion. According to the prevailing point of view, the basis for the validity of treaties and the fundamental guarantee of their fulfillment was therefore not a common consent of the parties or the good faith principle, but a religious oath taken at the conclusion of the treaty. The importance of religious oaths won't as international law became increasingly secularized. However, as Roland Lesaffaire points it out, Pacta sunt servanda emerged in modern international law thanks to medieval canon law. The principle of ex respecting treaties has been known from the beginning in all cultures and all on, all, on all continents. However, in relations between states belonging to different cultures, faithful to different religions, then to different standards of civilization, as in uh, relations between Christian and uh, Muslim states, later between barbarous and civilized states, it has sometimes been called into question. Up to the um, 18th century, the doctrine of, law, of, the, law of uh, the law of nations, including Vittoria, Gentili, Grotius, saw Pacta as a principle of natural law. Gradually, however, the view also began to be formulated that the consent of, the sta of states was fundamental to the beginning to the binding force of um, agreements and their performance. In this context, it is worth mentioning the Spanish scholar Francisco Suarez, who lived at the turn of the 16th and 17th centuries. The, um, the principle of the sanctity of treaties and later Pacta sunt Servanda was applied to the treaty as such. Sometimes it was, it was incorporated into the text of the treaty, usually they final clauses. Descriptive formulas, at times very complex, were used. Good faith was not always included. When interpreting and stating pacts, there was usually no insight into what a treaty was. It was only from the 18th century onwards that some legal scholars began to view a treaty as a bundle of legal obligations, as Puffendorf Wolf, Hefter, Brunchli, and especially Fiore and Ancelotti. The 19th century and the first half of the 12th uh, century was a period of positivization of international law. The PSS principle has become the subject of judicial decisions. Thus, in the arbitral award in Charles Adrian van Bokelen versus the government of Haiti delivered in 1888, the arbitrator stated, treaties of every kind, when made by the competent authority, are as obligatory upon nations as private contracts abiding upon individuals, and to be kept with the most scrupulous good faith. Similarly, in the case of the North Atlantic Coast Fisheries case, the Great Britain against United States of 1910, the arbitral tribunal ruled that according to the principle of international law, treaty obligations are to be executed in perfect good faith.
the preamble to the to the covenant uh, covenant of the League of Nations recognizes recognizes that the maintenance of justice and a scrupulous respect for all treaty obligations in the dealings of organized peoples with one another is an instrument for ensuring international cooperation and ensuring international peace and security. After the First World War, an arbitration on the citizenship of various individuals in the Lithuania versus Germany dispute of 1937 said as well, under the principles of international law, a state must fulfill in its bona fide international obligations. The obligation to respect treaties has never been treated as absolute. Nevertheless, there has almost always been an attempt to limit and clarify derogations. The most serious problems concerned conflict with other treaties, the admissibility of unilateral liberation from the duty to perform, including breach as a ground for determination of, of the treaty rather than responsibility, and the admissibility of non-performance in response to a breach by the other party to the treaty, and uh, finally the impact of fundamental change of circumstances existing at the time um, the treaty was concluded, rebel substantives were very important. In practice, one of the significant challenges to PACTA was the rejection of free liberation from observance of the treaty. In this regard, mention should be made of the annex to the London Protocol of 1871. It was concluded in the context of the Russian attempt to change the status of the Black Sea Straits, established in 1856. Its parties adopted the principle of prohibiting unilateral releases from treaty obligations, such a release could only be made with the consent of the other contracting parties reached by the by amicable agreement. This rule was also confirmed in Article 10 of the 1922 Pan-American Convention on Treaties. It provided no state may exempt itself from the obligations of a treaty or modify its provisions except with the consent secured by peaceful means of the other contracting parties. Unfortunately, the principle of the sanctity of treaties, later Pacta Sunservanda, is merely a former rule. Parties to treaties have repeatedly violated them, undermining faith in the principle. It is therefore not surprising that efforts were made from the outset to ensure its performance. This was done by means of various safeguards. The scope and nature uh, of uh, these uh, safeguards were, uh, have, uh, have modified over centuries under the influence of cultural changes. I mean here about oaths, clauses of curses and blessings, the threat of, of excommunication, hostages, marriages of rulers and their children, tributes, securities, pledges, and later unilateral, bilateral, or multilateral third-party guarantees. Reference to the PSS principle was, was intended to emphasize the importance of the binding force of treaties and the consequent need to observe them. Recognizing the importance of this function of the principle, Hans Kelsen and later Alfred Ferdos assumed that this principle is the rule underlying the binding force of international law and even of all law. But the Harvard University scholars who drafted and published in 1935 the draft convention on the law of treaties emphasized a different aspect of the principle, stressing the obligation of performance. They referred it to, not to, to the treaty itself, but to the, to, uh, to the obligations arising from the treaty. As a result, Article 20 of the draft stated a state is, not bound, is bound to carry out in good faith the obligations which it has assumed by a treaty. It was complemented by Article 23, which provided, unless otherwise um, provided in the treaty itself, a state cannot justify it, its failure to perform its obligations under a treaty because of any provisions or omissions in its municipal law 
or because of any special features of its governmental organization or its constitutional system. Let's focus now um, on the contemporary legal status of the PSS principle. When it comes to the legal basis of the principle, it is usual to distinguish between substantive and formal legal basis. In the first case, the question is why Pacta Sunt Servanda is binding. There is no simple answer to this, to this question. Tradi traditionally, its legal basis was natural law. More contemporary voluntarists see it in, consensual, uh, in the consensual will of states or will of the international community, as Oppenheim Lauterpacht. But there are also other explanations of, the le of its legal basis, as solidarity, George Sell, normative assumption or logical rule, the uh, hypothetical rule or uh, rule of recognition, as in the case of Kelsen, Hart, and uh, later Dupuis, Jus Necessarium, Lord Machner, Lauter, uh, Lukashuk, Secular Natural Law, Clubbers, or Hollis. Or finally, the principle close to the general principles of law, Hermann Mosler. The fundamental dilemma in this dispute over the basis of the validity of Pacta Sunt Servanda is whether it is based on the consent of states, even implicitly or not. In the former case, the parties to the uh, treaty could declare that the Pacta Sunt Servanda principle uh, does not apply to them and therefore contract it out or change its content. In the later, it should be seen as a structural or systemic principle of reason um, inherent in every legal order, or a sort of advantage, since it is uh, in everyone's interest to comply with treaties, as in the case of game theory. And finally, uh, as having a non-consensual material basis, as good faith, morality, natural law, in this case, and uh, the, the principle um, uh, would be an immutable rule, as in the case of uh, Francisco Tezon. In this context, it appears that although states, as well as other uh, subjects of international law, enjoy freedom of contract, once uh, they subject um, an agreement to international law, they must accept that the PSS principle will also apply. The legal basis of Pacta Sunt Servanda can also be viewed from the perspective of formal sources of international law, in particular treaties, custom, and general principles of law. There is no doubt that today Pacta is a binding treaty rule. It is expressed in Article 26 and supplemented by Article 27 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. It, is, it, it also appears in specific form in some treaties, such as Article 300 of UNCLOS, or Article 20 of the UNESCO Convention on the Protection of Cultural Diversity. Its importance as a treaty rule is sometimes explicitly confirmed by the case law related to a, to a specific treaty or um, in official commentaries, like uh, the commentary on Article 1 common to the Geneva Conventions made by International Committee of the Red Cross. The inclusion of the PSS principle in the treaty, however, only confirms and reinforms the binding force of the treaty and the duty to perform obligations arising from it. So it is of declaratory value. Indeed, it would be difficult to recognize that the legal force of Pacta and its application to a particular treaty depends on its inclusion in any treaty. Even the Vienna Convention is not a universal binding treaty. This would mean that Pacta does not bind states not party to it. Meanwhile, the preamble of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties indicates that this is a universally recognized rule. In this situation, our thinking naturally turns toward custom, which is considered to be generally applicable law. The ICJ clearly stated in the Pulp Mills case of 2010, then Article 26 of the Vienna Convention reflects a customary rule. A similar position was, uh, has been taken, for example, by the European Court um, of Human Rights in two cases against Poland, I mean about Janowiec 2013 uh, and Al-Nashiri 2014. It is also regarded as a rule of customary law by certain representatives of academia, including Kunz, Elias, Salmon, Sur, or Trachtman.
However, as evidenced by the recently completed the ILC conclusions on the identification of customary international law, custom is based on consistent practice of states and the acceptance of that practice as expressing a legal rule. Moreover, both in international practice and in the Commission's conclusions, there is a belief that the customary law is consensual in nature, meaning that at the stage of, of the formation of a customary rule, any state can raise a persistent objection. Therefore, it can be considered that the permanent objection cannot be raised against it, and therefore there is no obstacle to considering it as a um, rule of customary law. However, the mere theoretical possibility of a permanent objection seems inappropriate for this principle. Nowadays, however, the persistent objector rule could apply to various specific manifestations of pacta. Thus, if some doubts arise with respect to the treaty on, um, and customary uh, basis for the binding force of PSS principle, it remains to consider the general principle of, uh, principles of law in this capacity. Pacta is considered a general principle of law by a part of the doctrine of international law. In doing so, some um, argue that in it, it is a manifestation of good faith, as Sorensen or Cheng. Others grant it exclusively um, or simultaneously the status of a general principle of international law, as Sur, Combaco, Brownlee, Ziegler, Baumgarten. However, if one uh, were to consider that Pacta sunt servanda is a general principle of law, derived from national legal orders, the problem de of determining its content and specific manifestation could um, arise. Dilemma of this type are revealed, for example, in international investment law. On the other hand, it seems that the recognition of Pacta um, as a general principle of international law thus generalizing the detailed rules of international law basically comes closer to saying that it is a systemic logical principle, as um, maintained by uh, Hugh Thervoy, for instance. Consideration of the legal status of the PSS principle also means uh, determining its normative character. This includes clarifying whether it is a principle or rather a rule, whether it can be categorized in, as a principle, uh, as a primary or secondary rule, and whether it can be considered a peremptory norm. Classifying Pacta Sunt Servanda as a principle or norm, it is not a simple task. Piet van Dijk, for instance, showed that all provisions of international law can be divided into provisions defining objectives, rules, and principles. Objectives aside, rules define specific behavior while principles set a standard of conduct and constitute norms of aspiration rather than norm, norms of obligation. However, principles are secured by prohibitions on behavior. In turn, uh, Roland Dworkin argued that while rules are either fulfilled or not, principles can be fulfilled to a greater or lesser degree. In, additions, in addition, norms have a designed scope of application while principles do not. Finally, the application of a norm is automatic, while, while principles are evaluative. In this context, Pacta Sunt Servanda is usually considered a principle, although this description is used rather intuitively. Meanwhile, the, at the first glance, one could argue that Pacta is the norm because it re requires the fulfillment of validly concluded treaties and the failure to perform of a treaty uh, is a breach of pacta. However, this reasoning is not correct. Pacta defines a standard of behavior, the performance of a treaty in good faith. As a systemic principle, it cannot be violated at all. A specific treaty obligation is fulfilled and breached. The only exception may be when pacta is expressly embodied in the treaty itself. Now a few remarks on the PSS principle as a primary or secondary rule. This division was proposed by Herbert Hart. For him, primary rules are substantive rules determining behavior of addresses. The secondary ones 
are rules of recognition in a way serving the primary rules, making it possible to determine their validity, interpretation and termination. This division of rules has been adopted in the practice and doctrine of international law. Although international bodies have not explicitly pronounced on the matter, it can be assumed that Pacta Sunt Servanda principle belongs to the secondary rules. Finally, uh, when it comes to the division of norms into jus cogens and jus dispositivum, the status of Pacta Sunt Servanda is subject of doctrinal dispute. Some scholars, like uh, Robert Kolb, believe that uh, despite its systemic nature, uh, it should be considered a peremptory norm. Others, like uh, Teslim Elias, deny uh, it uh, this status since it allows exceptions. Still others, like James Crawford, argue that Pacta as a systemic rule does not fall under this classification and states cannot contract it out. Similarly, Alexander Orakrashvili considers that, that um, the division applies only to primary rules and therefore does not apply to Pacta. The later position, I, I think, is accurate. This is also how the parental norms seems to be viewed by the ILC conclusions um, on the use cogens adopted in 2022. They are substantive norms reflecting and protecting fundamental values of, international, of the international community. So let me say a few words about the content of Pacta of the Pacta Sunt Servanda principle. It is described in Article 26 of the 1969 Vienna Convention. It reads, as, it reads as follows. Every treaty in force is binding upon the parties to it and must be performed by them in good faith. In, ter in terms of content and function, this principle is still sometimes reduced to a founding rule of international law or to good faith. However, careful reading of Article 26 shows that this reductionist thinking is not correct. On the one hand, it is certainly not a rule that merely clarifies the binding force of treaties or even less of international law, as it focuses attention on the fact that binding treaties must be performed by their parties in good faith. On the other hand, as Robert Kolb Apti points out, good faith is not limited to the law of treaties or the performance of obligations. It is relevant for, at the formation of obligations chronologically and logically preceding PSS principle. Good faith can also limit Pacta by including exceptions in the principle. In the broader picture, good faith uh, is seen as a source of Pacta as confirmed by the uh, ICJ in the 1974 nuclear test judgments and the arbitral tribunal in the audit of accounts uh, related to the rain pollution case Netherlands versus France in 2004, as well as in the doctrine, Cheng, Elias, Ziegler, Baumgartner. In fact, the PSS principle consists of two interrelated elements. The first communicates that every treaty in force is binding on its parties. The second indicates that as such it must be fulfilled by them in good faith. There is a normative and functional relationship between them. A performance of obligation is a, the consequence of the treaty first becoming binding for the specific parties. It arises only for them and only when the treaty is legally binding. Let's interest now the first part of Pacta, which states every treaty is in force is binding upon the parties to it. The PSS principle applies to treaties and every one of them, no matter whether it is bilateral or multilateral, concluded for a limited or indefinite period of time, no matter what is, what is, um, is, um, what is its content. A treaty in pacta formula means any agreement within the sense of Article 2 of the Convention. As the ICJ points out, in the judgment on the preliminary objection in the 2017 Somalia versus Kenya dispute over maritime delimitation in the Indian Ocean, the concept of treaty is of customary nature. A treaty 
is a common statement of intent by the parties in writing subject to international law. However, the Vienna Convention in Article 3 allows both subjective and substantive extensions of PACTA. On the one hand, it does not prohibit the application of uh, the principle to agreements of states with other subjects of international law or between such other subjects. On the other hand, it allows the application of the principle to agreement, agreements concluded in the form other than written, it means orally, per facta concludentia, as long as um, they are subject to international law on the basis other than the Convention. A treaty in force binds its parties. So, a treaty must be in force in twofold sense. Objectively, it must enter into force as such. And subjectively, the relevant party must bind itself by it. Only then will the treaty be binding on the party, only then will a duty to perform arise. The PSS principle re requires fulfillment of a treaty between the parties to it. Use facit inter partes, pacta tertis nec nocent nec prosunt. However, international law knows exceptions to this rule both in favor and against the third party based on its consent. Articles 34 to 37 of the Vienna Convention. In addition, it recognizes the possibility that the specific treaty norms may apply to third parties on the basis of their reproduction in customary law, Article 38. The jurisprudence clarifies the conditions for such an effect. I mean about, for instance, the ICJ um, judgments in the um, North Sea Continental Shelf of 1969 or military and paramilitary uh, um, uh, activities in and against Nicaragua, in uh, uh, the judgment made in um, 1986. Some treaties also establish territorial regimes and must be respected by other states, although they are not parties to them. This may be the case with treaties uh, that define the boundaries of territories or maritime zones or even entire areas, as in the case of Antarctica. However, then, the basis for such a negative obligation not to violate is not pacta sunt servanda, but the principle of good faith. In the second part of the PSS principle, Article 26 of the Vienna Convention stipulates that the treaty in force must be performed by the parties in good faith. The Vienna Convention relies on the formal concept of the treaty, thus instrumentum, not negotium. But a treaty is not just a form. It is a bundle of international obligations which can be defined, defined as concretized and correlated rights and obligations linked by a claim. In this context, the duty to perform should be understood as an obligation to undertake all conducts in the international um, and or domestic sphere by, uh, of the party provided for in the treaty and aimed at effectively achieving its object and purpose. The performance of a treaty is therefore not arbitrary behavior, but behavior prescribed by the treaty. It consists of exercising rights and fulfilling duties. Some of them may leave the parties some freedom or even allow alternative behavior, but they are uh, subject they are not subject to the full discretion of the parties. The limit for rights is abuse of rights. The limit for obligations is responsibility. The fulfillment of a treaty may consist of making uh, of an implementing law, both in the form of international agreements and national laws. The performance of a, of, um, a treaty should be distinguished at the same time from uh, the application, interpretation, and enforcement of a treaty. The performance does not mean the application of law understood as making individual decisions in the international or domestic sphere, although it can involve the establishment of conditions for the application of a treaty. It is also not the same as treaty interpretation, although this contributes, as Gardiner observes, to the correct identification of rights and obligations. As Bürger points out, 
the performance of treaty obligations depends of in, of, on its interpretation. What is more, there is an obligation to interpret a treaty with the intention of ensuring its performance in order to achieve the treaty, uh, the, the, the um, substance of the treaty, a fait utile rule. The fulfillment of a treaty is also conceptually different from, from its enforce, enforcement. However, it may include the establishment of, of conditions for the for effective enforcement of the treaty rules. Every treaty must be carried out properly, both in terms of subjects, substance, time, place, and manner. The first dimension is determined by the principle of personal performance of treaty obligations. A party may not, unless permitted by the, by the treaty, liberate itself from the performance of an obligation by designating another entity obliged, as in the case of um, uh, pulp, mill, uh, pulp mills um, uh, of 2010. It must also carry out its obligations to the relevant subjects, including non-state actors, to which the treaty confers rights and obligations and ensures the procedural ways of redress, as in the case of human rights treaties. Treaty obligations should, also, uh, should, should be also executed in accordance with their content. They must be performed in full unless and to the extent that uh, they are modified by reservations. As Kolb aptly observes, the treaty should be integrally performed and when that is not possible, to the maximum extent possible. However, as Article 61 of the Vienna Convention provides, the supervening and complete impossibility of executing of a treaty can cause the termination of the treaty or um, enable to withdraw from, from it. When the impossibility is temporary, it can lead to suspension of the performance obligation. Some treaties allow for partial execution, as in the case of European Social Charter, where the choice of substantive provisions on which the state intends to be bound comes into play. Otherwise, as the arbitral tribunal uh, in the case of the Arctic Sunrise, the dispute between the Netherlands and Russia um, of 2015, emphasize, emphasizes with regard to the um, UNCLOS dispute settlement regime, a party cannot choose for itself the obligations it wishes to be bound by. As the ICJ held in the obligation to prosecute or extradite case in 2012, this rule is uh, particularly relevant when treaties protect collective interests, as when the United Nations Convention Against Torture is concerned. Obligations here must be viewed as a whole, elements of a single conventional mechanism. In turn, when it comes to the specificity, the WTO agreement, Treaty obligations constitute a single under undertaking. Then the parallel performance of obligations arising from all multilateral agreements is necessary, as was stressed by the panel, WTO panel, Turkey, restrictions on imports of textile and clothing products, products in, in uh, uh, 1999. A separate problem is the performance of treaty obligations when they are in conflict. Such conflicts may arise internally to a single treaty or more frequently in the execution of different treaties. A partial answer is provided in this regard by Article 30 of the Vienna Convention, where the problem is, more, is more, much more complex. Treaty obligations must also be uh, performed within a deadline specified therein. If not precise, then, as the ICJ notes in the obligation or prosecute, uh, to prosecute or extradite case, they should be carried out within a reasonable time. In any case, the ultimate moment of performance after which the responsibility already arises 
is when the other party is called upon to um, perform, to carry out an obligation. The duty to ful fulfill operates from the moment the treaty acquires the legal force and as, uh, for as long as it preserves uh, validity. Nevertheless, before a treaty enters into force and becomes binding on the parties, and as long as a party does not declare that it does not intend to be bound by it, the obligation not to defeat the object and purpose of a treaty contained in Article 18 of the Convention operates. Its basis, however, is not pacta sunt servanda, but good faith. Furthermore, as provided in Article 25 of the Vienna Convention and the 2017 ILC Guide on the Provisional Application of Treaties, the parties may stipulate in a treaty or otherwise that it will be provisionally applied both before it enters into force as such and in relation to specific parties before it enters into force in relation to them. And again, until they declare that um, they do not intend to become a party to the treaty. Unlike Article 18, however, uh, this time the PSS principle works. Moreover, the treaty can remain in force, but the performing obligation may not function. This is the case when the operation of the, of the treaty is suspended in whole or in part, as Articles 44 and 72 of the Vienna Convention mention. Finally, the duty to perform may operate in exceptional situations where the treaty will no longer remain in force. This will be the case when the parties agree to that certain obligations will continue for a certain period of time after the termination of the treaty. Good example are sunset clauses in investment treaties. They require investment protection obligations to be performed for a period of 5 to even 20 years after the expiry of the treaty. Treaty obligations must, must also be duly fulfilled as to the place. Thus, it, if it pertains to the navigational uh, use of a, a particular river, the obligations pertaining to, to it must be performed first and foremost in the place where it flows, not anywhere. A treaty concerning a military base requires conduct to be taken concerning the base. Thus, the performance of obligations as to the place is not the same as the territorial validity of the treaty within the meaning of Article 29 of the Vienna Convention. Last but not least, the treaty obligations must be carried out properly as to the manner. Treaties may contain regu regulations that leave the parties free to choose the means and methods of performance. However, this freedom is limited by good faith and the need to achieve the object and purpose of the treaty. In any case, obligations of action and omission, result and conduct, due diligence and other may come into play here. The fundamental standard of the performance of treaty obligations incorporated explicitly into Pacta Sunt Servanda is good faith. Good faith, however, is a general undefined concept. On the one hand, this is, uh, this is its advantage, since it makes it possible to refer to it in a wide range of cases, as well uh, as to derive more specific uh, requirements from it. But on the other hand, it is also its fundamental weakness, since its uh, vagueness um, gives rise to controversies touching the, its autonomous meaning. Simplifying, uh, it can be assumed that good faith means uh, the attitude of a party that expresses it in itself simultaneously loyalty, honesty, integrity, seriousness in the statements of intent made. In this respect, it is the opposite of bad faith, opportunism, arbitrariness, deceitful, fraudulent, or obfuscating behavior. It can be described as a rational, ethical attitude. At the same time, good faith is a matter of a party um, acting reasonable to fulfill the purpose and content of rights and obligations in accordance with an international obligation. 
In the Gabčikovo Nazimarish project case, in the dispute between uh, Hungary and Slovakia, um, the judgment delivered in 1997, the ICJ stated, the principle of good faith obliged the, obliges the parties to apply it in a reasonable way in a, such a manner that um, its purpose can be realized. In negative terms, good faith requires that a party not trivialize its obligations or exercise its rights in a manner unjustified uh, by the purpose and content of the obligation, not act in a manner that impedes the, their achievement, and not degenerate the purpose or content of the obligation or cause, uh, cause it to terminate unreasonably. Good faith creates for the parties to the treaty a reasonable expectation of behavior based on trust and confidence. It is a reputable presumption, however, the parties to the treaty act in good faith when performing such obligations. At the same time, as De Leon pointed it out, it gives rise to two, two further presumptions, conduct in accordance with international law and lack of intent to violate the uh, treaty obligations again. Good faith in, is a framework standard. It gives rise to specific duties indicating how obligations are to, are to be carried out. This includes in particular, first, the duty to select the appropriate means of performing the obligation, for instance, the idlers seabed chamber in advisory opinion on responsibilities and obligations of states of 2011 said, a party must act in good faith taking the various options into account in a manner that is reasonable, relevant and conducive to the benefit of mankind as a whole. Second, the duty to exercise its discretion powers in good faith. The ICJ, in mutual assistance uh, in criminal matter, matters between uh, Djibouti and France, uh, delivered uh, the judgment delivered uh, in 2008, ruled that although bilateral convention between these parties provides a state to which a request for assistance a very reasonable discretion, this exercise of discretion is still subject to the obligation of good faith codified in Article 26 of the 1969 Vienna Convention. And third, the duty to act without prejudice to the rights and interests of others. It is relevant especially in the case of uh, obligations relating to the territory as confirmed by various treaties, including Water Courses Convention, for instance, uh, UNCLOS, and the case law, for instance, arbitration like Lanu case, uh, ITLO's uh, judgment on the delimitation of uh, the border between Bangladesh and Myanmar, 2012, ICJ, a judgment in the dispute between Nicaragua and Colombia on violations of sovereign rights and maritime spaces in the Caribbean Sea of 2022. Let's go now to the last part of my lecture on consequences of Pacta Sunt Servanda. The first component of the principle Pacta sunt servanda relates to the binding of the parties to a treaty in force. This leads to the general prohibition of arbitrary dispensation from the treaty performance. The fundamental concretization of this rule is the prohibition on invoking a party's internal law. Its expression became Article 27 of the Vienna Convention, which also, as the ICJ points out in the Pulp Mills case, has customary status. According to, the, to Article 27, a party may not invoke the provisions of its internal law as justification for its failure to fulfill a treaty. This rule is without prejudice to Article 46. As the WTO arbitration in the Brazil Aircraft Export Financial Support Program um, underlined Internal law is to, un uh, is to uh, be understood broadly, not only public law, but also private law, insofar 
as it is subject to domestic law. The rule contained in Article 27 expresses the general assumption that in the international sphere, international law takes uh, always precedence over domestic law. In the case of 1986 Vienna Convention, this priority also applies to the prohibition of invoking the rules of uh, organization. In contrast, the internal legal orders of states and international organizations, including especially those such as the European Union, are different. Where international law is allowed to operate directly, it is not usually given precedence over constitutions or required to take into account the autonomy and specificity of the internal order, as in the case of the European Union, which raises practical problems. They are very hard to resolve. In addition to Article 27, other prohibitions have also emerged from uh, the case law. These include, first, the prohibition on relieving oneself from an obligation by demonstrating the characteristic of it, the internal structure of, the, of a party. For instance, the independence of the judiciary. Second, the prohibition on invoking internal difficulties and the use of international procedures aimed at relieving oneself of a performance obligation. In the case obligation to prosecute or extradite, um, resolved by the International Court of Justice in 2012, uh, financial difficulties and recourse to the African uh, Union were at stake. Third, Prohibition on invoking a change of circumstances surrounding the conclusion of the treaty. The only exception is the doctrine of rebus sic stantibus, as stated in Article 62 of the Vienna Convention. However, in this case, the Banduary treaties must be always respected. 4. The prohibition on relieving an obligation to perform by showing that the, pa the other party to the obligation has breached the treaty, in adimplendi, non est adimplendum. In the arbitration Croatia uh, versus Slovenia in 2016, this rule, in adimplendi, non est adimplendum, was called as a uh, rule, rule of international law. Article 60 of the Vienna Convention also um, contain, contains uh, the prohibition uh, according to which uh, the, the, uh, um, the treaty only apply, uh, sorry, it's, uh, Article uh, 60 only applies in the case of material breach of the treaty. It does not always uh, result in termination, but also in suspension of, of the treaty, which depends on the nature of treaty and the obligations contained therein. Moreover, it cannot be applied to provisions on the protection of the human person in humanitarian treaties. Complementing the negative consequences of Pacta Sunt Servanda is the prohibition against circumvention of the performance obligation. In other words, an international organization cannot absolve itself of this obligation and responsibility by issuing a decision or authorizing member states or another organization to commit an act. On the other hand, a state cannot, relieve, cannot absolve itself of the, obligation, of, the perform, of the performance obligation and responsibility by entrusting powers to the organization which it is a member. Uh, the only condition is that um, it is um, possible when, if uh, they would be internationally wrongful when committed respectively by the international organization that took the decision or issued the authorization or by the entrusting member state. However, Pacta Sunt Servanda also gives, gives, gives rise to certain positive consequences, which are more related to its second component. It means the obligation to perform the treaty in good faith. These consequences are generally aimed at maintaining the duty to carry out obligations, despite 
various legally relevant developments such as legal responsibility, succession of treaties or armed conflicts. It is therefore a principle of international law that the duty to fulfill, to, uh, to fulfill continues despite the commission of a breach and the incurring of responsibility for it. This was confirmed by, uh, by Article 29 of the Articles of, um, on the Responsibility of States prepared by the International Law Commission in 2001, where stating that the legal consequences of an international wrongful act do not affect the continued duty of the responsibility state to perform the obligation breached. Equally, the subject changes that succession law regulates, including the 1978 Vienna Convention, generally promotes the continuity of the duty to fulfill. In this case, however, there are some exceptions to this rule related to the nature of the succession, for instance, the obligation to carry out a bilateral treaty ceases when the parties unite into one state, or the protection of newly independent states. However, even in this case, succession must not affect the continued performance of treaties relating to borders and border regimes. Finally, the principle of the continued validity and thus of uh, the performance of treaties also operates despite armed conflicts. As the IOC points out in the draft articles, it applies in particular to certain multilateral treaties referred in Article 7 of the draft and the annex added to it. For instance, treaties relating to the armed conflicts um, or international criminal justice, diplomatic or consular relations, human rights treaties, and so on. There is a reputable presumption that such treaties subsist both between belligerents and between them and third parties. The PSS principle is seen as a principle that uh, has um, positive impact on the functioning of the international legal order and the behavior of individual members of the international community. Under the dominance of the free will and the consent, the, and consequently dispositive rules, PACTA is one of the instruments for ensuring adherence to international law. It emphasizes the sense of the importance of being bound by treaties that have been validly concluded and the legal duty to perform the obligations arising therefrom. However, there are also criticisms of Pacta Sunt Servanda. They refer to, um, to some of its past and present undesirable uses. Indeed, Pacta was a means of perpetuating the colonial treaty order. Nowadays, it is also sometimes used to preserve various dependencies that are not perceived as just and equitable. Such uses of Pacta, which is after all only a technical rule, are due in international law, among other things, to the lack of developed protection of, for the weaker contracting party. It follows that Pacta and justice should be constantly confronted with each other in order to find the necessary balance between them. Thank you for the listening to my lecture on this important topic.